Hello, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, October the 17th. It's the Woolly Worm Weekend here in the high country. Hope you and yours are well. Today, we will continue our look at Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through verse 13 of chapter 3. So a big chunk of scripture, chapter 2, 17 through verse 13 of chapter 3. I'm going to read that, reading from the ESV translation. Paul's longing to see them again. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see your your face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that We are destined for this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you. We've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The passage from 1 Thessalonians, which we're now in, is this amazing testimony to a father's love. The church, after all, is a family, and God is our father. On one occasion, when Jesus was informed that his mother and brothers were waiting for him, he said of those he was teaching, these are my mothers and brothers. That's Matthew 12 and Mark 3, thereby indicating that A spiritual tie is as rich and deep as a physical tie, and oftentimes more so. In verse 17 of chapter 2, Paul pours out his father's heart of concern for these new Christians whom he had left in Thessalonica. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. I wonder where the idea ever arose that Paul was stern and cold, as some have suggested. I don't think you can read this letter without sensing the warmth of his heart 
and the depth of his love. At the time he wrote this letter, he was ministering alone in the city of Corinth. He was feeling the loneliness of that moment, being far away from loved ones. It's an incredibly unpleasant experience. Forget the danger, forgetting the danger that had driven him from Thessalonica and the cruelty that he had experienced there, he, he longed to be with them again. He, he even tried to go see them again, but was prevented by satanic interference. Already in this chapter, we have seen three sources of opposition to Paul. Opposition from the state, verse 2. Opposition from society, verse 14. And here, opposition from Satan. And while this might look like three enemies, it, it's really only one. Other scriptures indicate that the state and society are often the channels of the devil's attempts to hinder the spread of the good word of God, the gospel. And this is what Paul was encountering here. Which brings up a great question. Have, have we ever experienced a frustrating time in our own life when again and again we tried to do something we knew was right, found it hard going, we where we have we been met with opposition and hindrance, perhaps even from our own family. Well, according to this, this that's satanic hindrance and the psychological manipulation of minds to arouse opposition and to plant obstacles in our faith. That's what it is. The Bible is the only book that explains the persistence and the malevolence of evil. Why do we struggle so much in this life? What are we up against? Well, Jesus told us that that is, the, that, is the, that is the devil. That is Satan. He's a liar and a murderer, John 8, 44. He deceives and he kills. The satanic mind is responsible for, for the murderous violence, widespread deceit, false philosophies that we all are confronted with. And Paul himself tells us, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness. That's Ephesians 6, verse 12. No other book tells us that. It's, that, that it's not people who are a problem, but rather the spiritual forces of evil that prevail in the world. Well, Paul suggests in his writings that there are three things that we need to know about satanic opposition. Three things, at least. First of all, perhaps the most important, it's permitted by God. The book of Job says that Satan had to come before God and get permission from him to afflict Job's body. This man lost everything, his family, home, wealth. He had suffered terrible, terribly from boils that covered his entire body, but God had allowed it. And the end of the book reveals what was accomplished by that suffering. But it was all hidden for the moment from Job's eyes. So, so it's hidden from our eyes as well. But the Bible, the scriptures reveals that there's, there's a malevolent power of evil at work. There are demonic beings, master manipulators that are able to lead people about putting thoughts in their minds, planting obstacles in the path of the gospel. But God permits this for a reason. And these things are used by him. And that is the second fact that we have to remember. Opposition is often his method of training, God's method of training. Affliction, suffering, pain, and heartache are often God's way of getting our attention. Many of us have gone through that. You know, we paid little attention to him until we suffered a time of great heartache. Then, then we began to hear what he was saying to us. God uses opposition to train us. And not only that, but to give us an opportunity to overcome trouble, to rise above it. And the third thing, as it's made clear in this passage, 
is it underscores the value of these believers. Paul writes in verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For, for you are our glory and joy. Whatever else those words may mean, they are saying that Paul considered the spiritual maturing of these believers in Thessalonica and other places his most important work. He's saying, I've invested my life in you and your growth into mature whole people. That's what I've done. This is the most important thing in the world. And when Jesus comes, I will glow with pride that you have achieved the changes in your life that I long to see brought about. J.I. Packer quoted a psychologist on the six marks of maturity. Well, as Americans, we love to take self-examination. So, so here's one for us on what it means to be, to be a grown-up, to be whole, balanced, sane, able to cope with life. The first mark of maturity is the ability to deal constructively with reality, to face facts, to not cover up reality or call it something else, but to deal with it as it is. Mature people do not kid themselves. The second mark is adapting quickly to change. We all experience change. It's sometimes physical, sometimes it's at work, it's in our family, whatever. Immature people resist change. It makes them nervous. But the mark of maturity is to adapt to change because change is inevitable. It is one thing that we are doing our entire life, change. The third mark is freedom from the symptoms of tension and anxiety. That worried look, the frown, the ulcers, the palpitations of the heart all come because we are upset. We are anxious and worried, perhaps now more than ever. Maturing means we've begun to see that God is in control of this world. He is working out his purposes, and we don't always understand that. We don't always like that. We certainly don't always want that. But if we accept it, he will take us through deep water. He's not going to drown us. Maturity means we're learning to trust. Fourthly, it means to be satisfied more with giving than receiving, to see the joy in someone else's face when they, are get, when they get something that they need or want. That's a sign we're growing up. We're discovering the true values of life. The fifth mark is, is to relate to others with consistency, helpfulness, mutual satisfaction. Maturity is learning to get along with other people, to be a help, not a hindrance, to contribute to the solution and not to be always a part of the problem. And finally, maturing or maturity is sublimating and redirecting anger to constructive ends. Maturity is the ability to use the adrenaline that anger creates, not to lose our temper and to add to the problem, but to correct a situation or to contribute to changing the nature of the difficulty that is maturing. And these things, and that is what Paul longed for in these believers in Thessalonica. As the passage makes clear, his concern involved him also in a very deep commitment. Beginning with chapter 3, the first five verses, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, when we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we, were, that we were to suffer affliction just as it had come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For I feared that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 
Two times in this section, Paul says that there came a time in Athens when he could bear it no longer. That does not mean that he was anxious and fearful. Rather, he had not heard from them for so long that he felt he he had to take some action to find out what's going on in Thessalonica. And to his own personal deprivation, he decided to send Timothy to them while he remained by himself in Athens and then, then went on to Corinth. I'm sure that that is how Paul must have felt as he, as, he left alo- was, as he was left alone in Corinth, in that cultured, degraded center of, of Roman life. He had to face the city by himself, but he was willing to do it in order that these Thessalonian believers might grow in their faith. So he sent Timothy to them. He had three things in mind. He tells us, first of all, to establish them in faith. In other words, to teach them the great realities that their faith rested on. The coming of Jesus, his life and ministry, the death on the cross, his resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so the availability to them of a new resource in God that the world could not know anything about, the Thessalonians needed to be established in that truth. And that was Timothy's mission. Secondly, they needed to be exhorted to to steadiness, to not panic when things got tough. Let me say that again, to not panic when things got tough. Let me say that a third time, church, to not panic when things got tough. They should never forget that suffering and affliction could be surmounted. They had a resource to lean upon which they did not have before, so they did not have to fear. God would take them through everything and use it for their benefit. Paul had already laid the foundation for this when he was with them. He had told them that the human race was contaminated with the terrible pollution that the scripture calls sin. A little acronym for sin stands for self-inflicted neurosis. Sin is a problem that arises from inside. And that's what Jesus said, out of the heart proceed murders, adultery, fornication, lying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's Matthew 15, 19. Sin is an internal and inside contamination, which we inherited. And the bad news that comes with that is the wages of sin or the payment of sin, the result of sin is death. That's Romans 6, 23a. As Paul wrote in Romans, pain, suffering, anguish, and alienation, all forms of death. That's the bad news. And until we know the good news, we have to understand the bad news. But with it always comes the good news, the wage of sin, the penalty of sin, the punishment of sin, the the just fruits of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the rest of Romans 6.23. We cannot evade the painful results of our sinful choices, but we can find love and joy and peace even while we are working through our just desserts. That's the good news. That's what Paul had taught the Thessalonians and what Timothy needed to remind them of so that they would remain steadfast when in fact the afflictions came on. And then the third reason Paul sent Timothy to them was what he himself needed to know what was going on. Timothy would bring back word. And now he had returned with such a good report that that Paul is filled with joy as he reports in verse six. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, there it is again, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. 
for now we have for now we live and if you are standing fast in the lord for what thanksgiving can we return to god for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before god to paul's great relief his work had not been in vain it stood solid it was sure their faith was intact their love was evident and best of all their trust in god was secure they held these beautiful memories of Paul, and, and they longed to see him. He was, he's filled with thankfulness and the joy at this good news, and that is always the effect on a father's heart when he receives good reports on his children in the faith. It's how John felt as he tells us in his third letter, I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's Third John chapter 1, verse 4. This is what Paul is feeling as Timothy reports on the trials and the testings of the Thessalonians. Paul closes this section with this wonderful revelation of how to pray about situations like this. And he, he states that he has been, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may God, our God and Father himself, and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So do we ever wonder what to pray for when we, our, our family or our friends, are going through deep struggles, going through sorrow, struggling when they're in the grip there's a verse in Romans 8 that reminds us that at times we do not know what to pray, that we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but that the Holy Spirit helps us, and that's God's promise to us. Here we have a great example of how the Spirit helped Paul to pray for exactly what these people needed. There are three things about prayer in, in these verses, and, and we may know, first of all, he prayed earnestly. He did not get down beside the bed at night and say, bless my friends in Thessalonica. Paul prays earnestly. He thinks about what these people are going through. He sets the problem before God. He reminds him of his promises. He, he takes time to think deeply about their needs. So he's earnest. Secondly, he's frequently, that, that's day and night. He's morning and evening while he's working on his tents, whatever he's doing, his lips are moving in prayer because his heart is concerned for them. They're seldom out of his thoughts, and whenever he thinks of them, he prays. And then thirdly, he, he prays specifically. He has some very definite things to ask for, five of them actually, which he lists. He, he prays that he would see them face to face. He wanted to get back to Thessalonica to have the joy of, of seeing those friends. And secondly, he wanted to, to minister further to them that we may supply what is lacking in your faith. They needed to know a great deal more about the Christian view of the world and of life. We when we understand how to look at the events of our life and the way that the word of God does, then we are being realistic and all the confusion and the illusion disappear. We start seeing things the way they really are. Paul wanted to open their eyes to, to further truths from God. Then, then he prayed to overcome satanic hindrance, our God and father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Are, are we finding it difficult to get to where we want to go? Well, here's, here's how to pray. Pray that God will often, that God will open a way for us, either physically or spiritually, to the goal that we have in mind. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you'll, you'll find it. Knock, it'll be open. That's how Paul prayed. He knocked on the closed door asking that, that he might get back to Thessalonica. Later accounts reveal that God answered that prayer and he did, and he did return to these believers. 
Fourthly, he prayed that their love might increase according to the New Testament. This is the mark of a successful church. In the New Testament, success is gauged by how much people learn to love each other, forgive one another, listen to one another, support and pray for one another, and reach out to those in need around them. That's what Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. And then finally, he prays that they might continue to live righteously until the Lord comes, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The coming of Jesus is no further away from from you and I than it is for these believers in Thessalonica. Since it's no further away than the end of our life, he comes for us if we know him when when we die. Paul is, is therefore praying that the rest of their lives might be marked by this unblameable living. This does not mean sinless. We've already talked about this. Blamelessness does not mean sinless. Uh, Unblameable means that they were dealing with what was wrong, not covering it up or pretending that it wasn't there. They dealt with it in their own hearts with the spiritual resources that God provides. And so they were enabled to turn from evil and walk closer and closer with God. Paul knew that Jesus Christ will someday enter into his world again. The scriptures anticipate it. We're, we're perhaps nearing it now. Who knows? But it's no further away than our own personal death. But it may be even sooner than that. And Paul hopes that all believers will live in the expectation that the Lord's coming will find us living the way we ought to live. The New Testament shows us that afflictions are needed in our lives. God does sometimes grant our request and removes problems. And, and it is not wrong to, to pray for this, if we, but also understand that he has perfect freedom to say no. But what he tells us to pray for is not that these things be prevented, but that they be used in our lives. In the week before Jesus was crucified, he said to Peter, his, his, the most troublesome of, of, his, of the apostles, the one who suffered most from that, that old hoof and mouth disease, Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. That's Luke 22, 31 through 32. I've always been interested to see what, what he prayed for. He, he did not pray, do not let it happen. Stop Satan from getting a hold of, of you. What he said, rather, was, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Luke 22, 32. That was uttered before that tragic night when Peter denied Jesus. That denial was Satan sifting him. But Jesus had prayed, Father, though Peter must go through anguish and heartache, I pray that when it happens, his faith will hold firm, that you will take him through and use it for good in his life. Anything can happen in this next week. Heartache, tragedy, joy, glory. But, wh- but whatever happens, I hope that we pray that it will deepen our faith, that it will increase our love, and will open our blinded eyes to the truth and reality and result in spiritual stability in the troubled and the bothered times in the world in which we find ourselves today. Amen. And God bless.